Hello, and welcome to the Snow Rains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains, and I was arrested and strip searched in Canada at the tender age of 18 for crossing the border with marijuana. I spent a night in jail with my best friend in the cell next to me. They told us we had two choices, Taco Bell or KFC. I chose KFC. The Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area, an independent mountain with a laid back vibe that averages 547 inches of deepness every winter. My guest today is Dr. Michael Fishman, MD. Dr. Fishman is an occupational and environmental medicine physician and toxicologist. He serves as a consultant in these fields to large organizations such as Intel. Dr. Fishman is a clinical professor in and the assistant chief of the Division of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, Department of Medicine, at the University of California, San Francisco. He was also an elected member of the Board of Directors of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine from 2009 to 2015. Dr. Fishman received his medical degree at the University of Michigan and his master's degree in public health and environmental health sciences from the University of California, Berkeley. Go Bears! He did his residency training in internal medicine and in occupational medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and is board certified in both fields. Dr. Fishman is co-author of a textbook, Chemical Hazards of the Workplace, and the author or co-author of multiple book chapters on various topics, including occupational cancer, building associated illnesses, semiconductor manufacturing hazards, and risk communication. And finally, Dr. Fishman is also my dad. Hello, dad. Welcome back to the show. How are you today? I'm just fine, Miles. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, first of all. And uh, let, let's just jump right into it. I really want to give our listeners an idea of where things are going with the coronavirus vaccine right now, and when we can hope to see things get back to normal, and when we can stop having to use masks at ski resorts. I think a lot of us are really excited about that possibility. So I'll jump into some numbers here. So according to Johns Hopkins University, as of today, February 12th, 2021, the USA has seen 27.5 million coronavirus cases and 481,000 deaths due to the coronavirus. It was really sad. Globally, we've seen 108 million coronavirus cases and 2.4 million deaths due to coronavirus. To date, the USA has administered 46 million coronavirus vaccines, which is about 7% of the US population. To vaccinate our entire population, we may need somewhere around 600 million vaccinations since the vaccinations we have right now, for the most part, require two doses. Globally, we've seen about 160 million vaccinations, and we have about 8 billion people. So we need about 16 billion vaccinations or so to vaccinate the whole world. So this is a monumental task that we've never done before. The first question that I think a lot of us are trying to understand is, 
How does uh, the COVID-19 vaccine work? So basically, like other vaccines, this vaccine works by allowing the immune system to develop antibodies that are able to neutralize the virus. There also probably is a cell-mediated, T-cell-mediated immune response as well. There are a number of different types of vaccines, and they use different mechanisms to protect against the virus. For example, some use an inactivated virus. Others use another virus, a benign virus, so that carries the gene for the coronavirus spike protein. Spike protein is the protein that the coronavirus uses to attach and to enter a human cell. The two vaccines that are available in the U.S. now are a new type of vaccine. It's the first time that these have been used in humans. It's called an mRNA or messenger RNA vaccine. Basically, the vaccine contains messenger RNA that's injected. The mRNA enters human cells. Then the cells actually produce the spike protein. The spike protein, when it leaves the cells, the immune system recognizes it uh, as foreign and generates antibodies to the spike protein. And then if an individual is exposed to the virus, the antibodies bind to the spike protein, neutralize the virus, thus avert an active infection. Fantastic. How many vaccines are there out there right now? And do they all require two doses? Is that right? Not all of them require two doses. There are currently about 10 different vaccines that are available and being used in one or in more countries. Uh, in the U.S., as I mentioned, there are two, the mRNA vaccines. Most of them seem to require two doses, but there's one or, or more that only require a single dose. And vaccines in general, some require a single dose, some require multiple doses. So it's not surprising that the two doses are required. So far, the other one I was learning about was the Johnson & Johnson one that might not be approved yet, but it sounds like it was less effective than the two-dose ones we have. Uh, is that what you understood? The mRNA vaccines are remarkably effective, about 95% effective, which is really good for a vaccine. It's amazing. I can't remember the number for Johnson & Johnson, but it's somewhat lower than that. I heard 70%. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. So how effective are these two-dose vaccines against the coronavirus after only one dose? So it's said that within a couple of weeks of the first dose, you do have some protection, but it's not as much as what you get after the two doses. Uh, so there, there's some protection. I don't know what the percentage is, but maybe 50 or 60% protective. Okay. And what's the time between doses? Well, for the two vaccines in the U.S., one is the Moderna vaccine, and that requires four weeks between the two doses. The other vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, requires three weeks between the two doses. Okay, so for both of those, after your second dose, you know, are you immune then, or do you need, still need a little bit of time? You need about two weeks to actually develop the full immune response from the vaccine. After the second dose. So after the second dose, two weeks later, you're good to go. That's what the information is that's out there, yes. Great. And so what percentage of the U.S. population needs to be vaccinated to achieve this mythical herd immunity that we all hear about? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. In general, with 
herd immunity. I think that not for COVID specifically, but about 70% of the population needs to be immune in order to substantially reduce the transmission of the virus. So I don't know what it is for COVID-19. What about the new virus variants, such as the UK strain? How are our current vaccines doing against those new strains? It looks like the mRNA vaccines are likely going to be effective against the, the variant strains, the UK strain and the South Africa strain, which are the ones that have gotten the most attention and they're characterized by being more transmissible. They're more contagious than the wild strain or the original strain of the virus. It's thought that the South African strain may be less protected by vaccination than the UK variant, but you know there's still some uncertainty. The studies that have been done are actually test tube type studies where antibodies or serum from a person that's been vaccinated are incubated with the virus and they're looking at how much the virus gets neutralized. So it's not real world in live people. That's not been done yet. To be clear, the South African and the UK strain, you know, variants of coronavirus, they're in the USA. We know that. That's exciting and scary. And so something to be thought about and something to really study, you know, as we move forward and see where we end up with these two things. But also some people are talking about, including Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, said that uh, it might be more deadly, the UK strain. Is, is that something you've heard about at all? There is... A small study that has suggested that there was a small a small increase in the case fatality rate from the UK variant compared to the wild strain of the virus. It was not a big difference, and the the absolute number of increased deaths was small. So it's not clear. I think you know there's only one study that's been done and it's not definitive, but it's possible that a slightly higher mortality rate from the UK variant. Well that's great news that and at least in that small study, it didn't look like it was hugely significant. And you know, thinking of that, do you recommend a particular vaccine? No, I, I mean, even if I did, I don't think it would matter because you're basically going to be stuck with getting the vaccine that's available in the country in which you reside. So the two mRNA vaccines that are in use in the United States are very effective and appear to be very safe. Uh, so I'm comfortable with you know either one of them. I actually just got my first dose of the Moderna vaccine, but I have to wait a month to get my second dose. In other countries, there's a Russian a vaccine. There are several Chinese vaccines that are being used in other countries. And I think you're kind of stuck getting the one that's been approved for use in your country. Well, Dad, I'm, that's great news. I'm really glad that you got the vaccine because you are so old. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm really glad, though, Dad, that you got the first one. That's great. Uh, and especially, you know, as your position as a, as a medical doctor, that's important. The bottom line is, you know, what I've been hearing on the news and all that is, is just take what you can get. As soon as you have an availability, don't be picky. The vaccines are all great, have high efficacy, you know, put it in the arm and go. When are the vaccines going to be available to everyone? And, you know, how do I or, you know, regular people, how do we continue to protect ourselves from getting COVID-19 in the meantime until we can get this vaccine? It's probably going to be a, a while in the U.S. before everyone gets vaccinated. But I, I've heard optimistically that, you know, maybe, you know, the end of the summer, a good high proportion of the U.S. population will be vaccinated. That proportion is going to be a lot lower internationally, particularly in 
developing countries where there you know, isn't much vaccine supply available. In the meantime, you're stuck doing the same things that everyone's been instructed to do, maintain social distancing, wear a mask, avoid large crowds, avoid areas where there's not good ventilation. You're kind of stuck with the same preventive measures that have been recommended all along. Well, it's good. It seems like they've been working. I'm really curious if I get to go to Argentina this summer. And it's totally okay if I can again. I had a blast, you know, staying in California and surfing all summer, but but I wonder if I'll get to go. And I don't think you can answer that question. But hopefully, hopefully in August, September, I can go. What do you think? Uh, well, I, I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> well, thanks, Ted. So if I've already had COVID-19 and I've recovered, do I still need to get vaccinated? The answer is yes. The reason is that it's not clear how long a person will be immune after a natural infection with the virus. There's some suggestion that it might be as little as three to six months. So there are a number of cases. It's still a small number of reinfections uh, with the virus. Clearly possible for that to happen, and presumably because the immune response wanes over time. So because of the fact that that it's not enduring immunity, still recommended to get vaccinated even if you've had COVID-19. It makes sense. You know, my friend got COVID-19 twice. Uh, So she's, I think, one of the very few cases in the U.S. that got it twice. So she actually has that documented and all that. So it's it's what you're saying is very true. So if I've already had COVID-19 and recovered, do I still need to wear a mask and socially distance and continue doing all these things? Yes, you know, again, because the duration of immunity isn't known, but it may be relatively short. So it still makes sense to to wear a mask and, you know, avoid getting close to other people. Those are uh, still recommended even if you have recovered. And so if I do get lucky enough to get the COVID-19 vaccine, can I get COVID-19 from the vaccine? What are, what are the other side effects? So none of the vaccines that are currently available use live SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. There are some that use an inactivated uh, virus. There are some under development that may use or will use a weakened or attenuated strain of the virus. But again, that's not going to cause an active infection. You're not going to get an infection from getting the, the vaccine. In terms of side effects, most common side effects are similar to the ones that people get from other vaccines. Probably the most common thing is, you know, to get soreness at the site of the injection. I think it may be a little more severe than with some other vaccines. And then there are some general or constitutional symptoms that sometimes people get low-grade fever, uh, muscle aches, and that sort of thing. But those side effects are short in duration. They don't last long, uh, maybe a few days. There are some relatively rare, more serious side effects. The ones that are most well-documented are severe allergic reactions or what are called anaphylactic reactions. Uh, and those have occurred because of you know, some sensitivity to some component of the vaccine. But again, those are rare. And for our listeners, anaphylaxis is basically when your throat closes because of a response, you know, an allergic reaction. And, and it's bad because you, you can no longer breathe when that happens. So that's, it's really dangerous. 
what percentage is that happening in dad? Is it, it sounds like very few people are having uh, these severe allergic reactions. I don't, I don't know the number, but it's, it's very low. There's just a handful of those reactions that have occurred. So infinitesimal as far as percentages go. And then when you got your shot, did you experience any side effects? Just soreness in my arm, nothing else. So it was pretty easy and painless overall. Well, that's great. How long did the soreness last? A couple of days. Wow, that's, that's not bad. I remember when I would get vaccines as a kid, the doctor would tell me, go play basketball. And that helps kind of shake it off. So maybe that a little bit of activity can help. Is it safe for me to get a vaccine if I'm pregnant or if I'm breastfeeding? The answer to that isn't absolutely known, mainly because the vaccine trials did not include pregnant women or women who were breastfeeding. You know, there's not any experience from those trials that allows you to know whether or not they're, they're safe. Presumably, some people who are pregnant are getting vaccinated now, and I haven't heard of any particular problems. You know, you've got to keep in mind that getting the infection, COVID-19, uh, is not good for you. And, and there are some suggestion that pregnant women are at greater risk of more serious infections than non-pregnant individuals. So weighing the uncertainty about vaccine safety in pregnancy or in breastfeeding women against the certainty that there are going to be some severe cases, it makes sense to at least to seriously consider getting vaccinated. And I think, you know, in general, it, uh, it's recommended that you talk to your doctor and, you know, get advice from your doctor as to how to proceed. And what if I have a serious illness? Uh, is it safe to get the vaccine? The vaccine trials involve a large number, you know, each of them 30, 40,000 individuals. And certainly some of those individuals had chronic illnesses. The data is not there for specific illnesses, but the CDC and other public health authorities are saying that there's no contraindications to getting the vaccine other than if you have an allergy to components of the vaccine. So there is an evidence of a problem in people who have serious underlying diseases. Again, you want to probably talk to your doctor about that. That's good news and good advice. And are children able to get the vaccine? And if not, when will they? So children also were not included in the vaccine trials. There now are some trials underway in children, I think, between 12 and 18 years old and uh, then some plan that will be administered in children from 9 to 12 years old. So right now, they're not being given to, to children, but these trials, the results should be available probably over the summer. So it's likely that you know, children could start getting vaccinated in the summer or the fall of this year. Okay, so children haven't begun being vaccinated yet. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, the vaccines are only approved, I think, for people 18 years of age and older. They really made this vaccine quick, right? It was, it was a record creation of a vaccine. So how is it possible that they created it so quickly? You know, are you worried that there were any missteps or any steps were missed? Because, you know, my understanding that the vastest vaccine ever created was for the mumps. And it took four years back in the 1960s. And if, if for those of you who don't know, Maurice Hilleman was a ninja. This guy was responsible for developing more than 40 vaccines, including the measles, mumps, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, meningitis, pneumonia. 
uh, a bunch of other ones I can't even say, rubella. And yeah, his vaccines have been credited with saving millions and millions of life and er eradicating a lot of crazy, especially childhood diseases. So to come back to my original question, though, like, you know, why did, how did this one happen so quickly? Because this one was less than a year. So there are a number of reasons. There have been, you know, in recent years, a number of technological advances in biology and in vaccine development that probably made the production or the development of the vaccine much quicker than what it would have been 10 years ago before some of these techniques were available. The other thing is that there was a, a very concerted effort on the part of a number of researchers or investigators working on developing the vaccine. So it was a lot of researchers stopped doing what they were doing and started working on uh, developing vaccines. So there's a huge effort. There also was, uh, at least in the U.S. and probably elsewhere, there was a lot of government funding that was provided to assist in the development of the vaccine. So uh, I think all of those factors led to or allowed the rapid development of the vaccine. The clinical trials, as I mentioned, involved you know thousands of individuals and the vaccines, particularly those in the U.S., really didn't have significant adverse or side effects and seemed to be very safe. The public health authorities, uh, like the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, and CDC, still spent quite a bit of time reviewing that safety data. So I'm not concerned that there's there shortcuts were taken that that are going to compromise the safety of the vaccine. So essentially, it sounds like high technology that we have these days and just a massive, highly trained workforce came together to make this thing happen quickly. And it doesn't sound like steps were skipped, that it was fast-tracked in any unreasonable or irresponsible way. So that's great to hear. So why are we being told to continue to wear face masks and practice social distancing even once we've gotten the vaccine? The answer is that it's still not clear how long the immunity to the virus lasts after you get the vaccination. Uh, hopefully it's long lasting, but it's not known. The other thing that's not known is whether or not it prevents transmission. So in other words, the, the virus might still be in your system. You might be able to transmit it to others, even though you yourself don't get sick. So that's not known. There's some preliminary evidence that transmission risk is, is less in people who are fully vaccinated, but it's still not known. Okay. So, but the bottom line is even once you get vaccinated, keep up with a wearing of masks, keep up with social distancing until this whole pandemic is over, it sounds like. Will coronavirus be eliminated by this vaccine or might it stay around and linger and become something akin to the flu or the common cold? No one knows the answer to that question. It's interesting that a closely related virus, the SARS or SARS-CoV-1 virus that caused severe acute respiratory syndrome back in the early 2000s, I think. That virus disappeared after the you know series of infections were over. It just went away, and it's not clear exactly why that happened. You know, optimistically, maybe that will happen with this virus, but obviously a lot of other viruses like the influenza virus persist to some degree in spite of vaccinations and everything. So, you know, that might well be the case with this virus. 
really complicated because, yeah, I just listened to a podcast about the Spanish flu, you know, back in 1918. And it sounds like that might still kind of be around in the form of a flu or something. And they're, they're still trying to figure that out. So uh, it's definitely complicated. And the SARS-CoV-1 that you talked about, I just heard that just wasn't a very robust virus. And I don't know if that's just hearsay. You know, it sounds like the one we're dealing with now, you know, COVID-19 is, is quite a bit more robust. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the future if we always have something of it left um, and maybe it just becomes something normal that it isn't so deadly. And that's what I think a lot of us are hoping for. So fingers crossed for that. It does seem like SARS-CoV-2 is more readily transmissible than, you know, the original SARS virus was. That is clear. I'm not sure that it causes more severe illness than that one did, but it's easier to transmit from person to person. Clearly, right? This thing has just done so well. Those numbers we said at the beginning of the podcast are amazing. 108 million people infected globally is nuts. So I guess what we all want to know, and I know there's no good answers for, but you know, especially ski resort specific, you know, we're wearing masks and it's not too big of a sacrifice, but we have limited capacity and things are not normal. It does seem to feel a little bit busier out there too, because you can't fit as many people. On our last podcast, you and I talked about how many people could be on a chairlift, which you know is two if you're strangers and maybe only one person if you're by yourself in a gondola. So it really slows things down at ski resorts. We're seeing longer lines. Uh, it's definitely, it's a big change this year with the mask and the longer lines and the distancing, all of it. And so the big question is, you know, when can we stop using masks at ski resorts? When, when is this going to be a little bit more normal again? Again, you're asking a lot of questions that don't have uh, good answers to them. <laughs> That's my thing. But I guess once we achieve herd immunity, whenever that is, you know, then it will likely be possible to, to stop using some of these preventive measures like masks. But when that's going to be, I don't think anybody knows. It's tough to say. So there's a chance, though, potentially that next winter, we might not have to wear masks. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a, a reasonable chance of that. Well, we got our fingers crossed because I'm very happy to wear my mask. But yeah, it's definitely it's, it's a challenge and it's funky and it's different. So, Dad, we we talked about this in the last podcast, but I think it's fun for our listeners to hear. Did you ever go skiing? No, I'm too tall. <laughs> you know, I have too far to fall, and I'm kind of clumsy. So, no, I, uh, I I've never gone downhill skiing. You never went downhill, but you did go cross country skiing or something. I, I did one, one time do cross country skiing, but you wouldn't have wanted to see it. It was pretty. <laughs> and despite going uh, living in Michigan for what six years, when you went to school, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of people that did cross-country skiing there, but uh, not me. It seems like you could, in Michigan, I feel like you could cross-country ski from class to class. It's so cold and snowy. Well, Dad, I, uh, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm so sorry that a huge stump fell from the neighbor's house above your house and fell into your pool. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's a uh, very unusual event. I talked to people <laughs> and to um, uh, the pool uh, inspection companies, and they've never heard of anything like this happening. So, if you said it, it was huge, right? Like five feet around? Yeah, it was a huge stump that required a crane to pull it out of the, uh, the pool. <laughs> I love that you just had a crane pulling a stump out of your pool, man. This 2020-2021 is a truly crazy year. Yeah, it uh, is. And that's a pretty funny story, Dad. Well, thanks for sharing that. So th thanks again, Dad. I really appreciate you being here. Have a great night. All right. Talk to you later, Miles. 
The Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area. Come enjoy Alta midweek magic this season. Thank you so much for listening to the Snowbrains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. This episode was edited by Robert Wilkinson. The music was done by Chad Crouch. I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.